1: Citizens of the universe, recording
0: angels. We have returned to claim the pyramids.
1: Partying on the mothership,
0: I am the mothership connection.
1: Get down in 3D. Light year group.
0: This week on Other Planes of There, the Afrofuturism Podcast, we welcome Dr. John Jennings. John Jennings is Associate Professor of Visual Arts at the University at Buffalo Department of Art. His research and teaching focuses on the analysis, explication, and disruption of African-American stereotypes in popular visual media. John is an accomplished designer, curator, illustrator, cartoonist, and award-winning graphic novelist, whose publications include the graphic novels Blue Hand Mojo and Pitch Black Rainbow, Black Kirby with Stacey Robinson, The Hole and Black Comics with Damian Duffy, and the edited volume The Blacker the Ink, Constructions of Black Identity in Comics and Sequential Art with Daniel Yesbik and Francis Gateward. He is currently illustrating the first graphic novel adaptation of Octavia Butler's seminal black science fiction work on time travel and slavery, Kindred. John Jennings's illustrations grace the covers of many awesome academic publications, including Renaldo Anderson and Charles E. Jones's edited volume Afrofuturism 2.0: The Rise of Astro-Blackness. Most recently, John co-curated the exhibition "Unveiling Visions: The Alchemy of the Black Imagination," held at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture in New York City, and he is one of the co-founders of the Astro Blackness Colloquia on Afrofuturism. John Jennings, it is a pleasure to welcome you to Other Planes of There, the Afrofuturism podcast.
1: Oh, wow. thank you so much, Tobias. I, I really appreciate it. Um, wow, <laughs> when you read. When you read it out loud, it's like, oh, it's a lot of stuff.
0: <laughs> it is a lot of stuff, and it's actually quite intense trying to assemble a biography of all of your various works because I know I've I probably missed quite a few. Okay, I was just super curious. Uh, not only how did you get into the art of comics, but how did this become an academic as well as artistic pursuit?
1: Well, you know, it's, my, it's, it's totally my mom's fault. <laughs> 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 like, but my mom was a huge influence on my early development um, as far as like reading and um watching science fiction and fantasy i always say to my mom like kind of use conspicuous consumption of media as a way to express herself you know and um so any kind of like action movies and horror movies and fantasy movies you know i w- we were all watching that together and then you know i was always into mythology like from various uh folklore and backgrounds of like you know different cultures so like egyptian mythology and like Norse mythology and stuff like that. And so when she bought me, like, The Mighty Thor, I immediately saw the connection between, like, the comic book and, you know, Norse mythology. And then also, yeah, I totally just fell in love with, like, Spider-Man and Daredevil and Captain America. It was ridiculous. Like, before you know it, I was just addicted to anything. that looked like a comic book. <laughs> so that's kind of like, that's kinda like how, my mom, how my mom just totally ruined me forever. Um, as far as, like, the uh, academic um, aspect of it, I... Um, you see, I, I had I had kind of let it go for a while because I, I looked at like what I was doing uh, as far as like illustration wise, and then what I was seeing in kind comic of books, uh, and I just felt uh, that I just couldn't draw that way, or, or I wasn't making work that looked that way, you know. And I, that was kind of so I ended up you know pursuing graphic design as a profession in graduate school, and you know I've got a master's degree in like art education, and then once I looked back around and I started teaching at University of Illinois, uh, become interested in comics again, because I was interested in like representation from various standpoints. And then there was a show that came out of like Los Angeles called the Masters of American Comics. And, um, me and my friend Damien were like, you know what, this is actually not a very diverse show (laughs) and not not diverse by creators, but also like the type of work that was being uh, shown or how it was being presented. Content, you know, so various types of, when I think about diversity, I'm thinking about diversity of ours like medium, you know, representation for who's working on it, but also subject matter. So we ended up doing a lot of work around, you know, independent comics and other things. We did this show called um, Out of Sequence, uh, Underrepresented Voices in American Comics, which was kind of like a, a retort to the 2005 show it was only gonna be 12 artists and it ended up being like 48 artists and 148 pieces. It was ridiculous. And it's called The Heroes. And it was looking at like uh, stereotypes and images of you know black people in comics and also kind of like archetypes, that kind of thing, right? So that's kind of how I started dealing with race and representation in comics in particular. So then of course that spins off into black comics, the uh, coffee table book
0: that we did with Mark Bay publisher. I'm super curious, like you mentioned a couple of comics when you were growing up, were there any black comic characters around at that time that were of influence or inspiration to you? Or did you see that lack of representation in the available media at the time? You know, it's interesting because
1: I was so, I was getting like my representation, I think, of blackness in other media. And this is something I just thought about this because it's something I've been kind of puzzling about. Like, why wasn't I like, you know, you could talk to someone like Dawood Aniavile, who created you know, who co-created Brother Man, right, where he talks specifically about having a conversation with his father about the comics he was consuming, you know, and how early he was politicized. And I was, I have to admit, I was kind of envious of that. I was like, man, I wish I had been thinking like that. <laughs> you know, but, but no, I mean, actually, I would say, like, I did collect characters like Power Man and Iron, Power man and Iron Fist was like, you know, Luke Cage and you know and his cohort uh his his white martial arts friend you know I used to collect the heck out of those and of course I was Falcon and Black Panther I mean but I was actually more into like my favorite character was Daredevil and it was because I connected with him as a as a character him and Peter Parker like Matt Murdock and Peter Parker I, I saw I saw pieces of myself in them as far as like being outsiders and being like the Smart kid who gets taunted, and you know, I like the fact that Daredevil was like really, really like kind of ornery and just wouldn't give up. That's actually what his superpower is. So those, you know, those things actually kind of spoke to me on a subjective level. But I was watching a lot of, a lot of like black exploitation movies and all kinds of stuff, and so I think that the that that idea of like seeing yourself represented as something was there because you know we watched a lot of really inappropriate <laughs> black exploitation, <laughs> and also listen to a lot of blues music and, and so i think i think the representation and i i mean i, I grew up in the middle of mississippi so it was like i wasn't lacking any representation of myself and um and schools was even though it's was post-integration was still very segregated so it's like you know i actually didn't even see a white student until maybe 10th grade you know his name's Adam Schumacher Adam Shoemaker. <laughs> you remember it? <laughs> oh, yeah, because it was like, what? Who is this kid? you know <laughs> so, yeah, so it was like later on in life, so it's like it was just black people at this school, you know, so I was like, I think that that actually kind of smoothed out some stuff. Um, but as far as like comics go, I mean, I think the number one black character that I was really reading was probably Luke Cage, Power Man, you know, with iron fist,
0: yeah. So later when you went through academia and put together that first show, and uh, there was a publication that came out of that called Black Comics. Mm-hmm. Now you spell comics with an X, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I do sometimes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Is there a significance to that X when you spell comics with, with an X? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Traditionally, um, when you are spelling it C-O-M-I-X
1: instead of the I-C-S, you're referring to the underground kind of independent scene a little bit more. And I kind of borrowed that from the underground comics scene that was happening in the 60s and the hate in other places across across the world um, in the 60s, right, where, you know, there were like... You know these kind of um, resistant spaces to some of the mainstream stuff that was jumping off and you know with Marvel and DC and other uh, current comics so yeah so C-O-M-I-X because it's a resistant space and because it's underground comics you know we don't about black comics I mean there's um, growing you know under under culture that's been around since the 90s actually black creators are making like black content you know that kind of stuff and it's been around since like Brother Man and you know Milestone and other Ania, other companies like Tertero on Lee as a distributor and as a publisher back in the 90s that has kind of like spawned an entire like system of like conventions and award ceremonies and rivalries and heroes and stylistic. Ideology. I mean, it's it's wild, and it's a very deep uh, culture, just like any other subculture. Right. So that's what the X to me is kind of uh, signifying. To it, you know, it it situates itself in the his in the continuum of the history of like underground comics.
0: Nice. Yeah. So it's kind of part of that like countercultural approach to yeah, to yeah. comics. Yeah.
1: Yes. 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 I, I would. I would definitely. I would definitely situate it as a countercultural movement.
0: Yeah. yeah nice. I mean, to me, it also signifies a certain connection with, with Afrofuturism and some of the earliest work written on Afrofuturism in the early nineties actually talks quite a bit about black comics. That's right. That's
1: right. Thank for, you For bringing that up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's often kind of neglected, I think a little bit when uh, recounting the history of the term Afrofuturism is that there was quite a large focus on black comics and its initial development. I'm actually super curious when you first heard the term Afrofuturism and started to mobilize your work around it a bit or explore it academically with others
1: i want to say like probably 2008 2009 um i was dealing with some black cyborg images that i were i was creating for a show at james madison university and um i had been thinking about stereotypes and black stereotypes in particular and thinking about like fixity and how the black body becomes an apparatus of Various modes of control and how those stereotypes keep popping up. So I created a show called Matters of the Fact, actually, and um, and some of them actually reappropriate like African images, but also African-inspired imagery, and also um, symbolic connections to slavery and other types of discriminatory practices against Black bodies in our country. You know, I showed it to a friend of mine, Dana Rush, actually, who, when she saw it, she said, oh, this looks very Afrofuturist. And I was like, what is that? <laughs> and I was like immediately curious. And so I, after that, I just started doing research on the term and cultural production and just became like utterly fascinated by it and um, and totally fits what I was doing, honestly, mm-hmm. on a lot of different levels. And, um, and that's kind of like how I ended up being kind of tied to that that space.
0: Mm to a certain degree. One of the things that seems to be a trope of Afrofuturist approaches or cultural production is returning to the past to sort of revision it and create an alternative future. And this is a little bit about how I see your Black Kirby project. Now, I understand this project is an homage to the pioneering comics artist Jack Kirby, who invented Captain America, and with Stan Lee, the Fantastic Four, X-Men, Thor, Iron Man, the Hulk and of course the first known black superhero, I think, uh, the Black Panther. What did it mean to reinterpret and take on Jack Kirby's legacy as Black Kirby um, with Stacey Robinson? And why was it important for you to do so? Here's the
1: thing. So as started as a conversation, we were like, um, Stacey and I were, had been wanting to collaborate on some stuff anyway. We were having like more protracted conversations about it. And this is around the same time that Jack Kirby's family was trying to sue Marvel, Disney for like some remuneration. Jack Kirby, who is my guy, one of the most prolific and important uh, American cartoonists who ever lived. You know, and in his lifetime, he drew like over twenty thousand or so pages of comics. You know, and um, honestly, like for good or or, or, or ill, you know, he has kind of changed the medium of comics uh, forever, right? And inspired an entire generation of several generations of comic book art, artists, including, like, people who were in the Black Age comics. I mean, all of us were, like, reading X-Men and Hulk and, you know, checking out Captain America and stuff and actually being inspired by those characters. So so we found it very um, problematic that, you know, the company that he'd helped build, along with Disney, would, like, deny his family some type of monies or representation or what have you. And so the characters that are making billions, like, literally billions of dollars, <laughs> um... We're, we're not being accessed by this individual who helped create pretty much like an entire subsection of like American popular culture. So what we did was like, one of the things we said, was like, man, it's like, that's how they did black folk, <laughs> you know? So, you know, and again, you know, you know, uh, Jack Kirby, Stanley, they're both of Jewish descent, they're Jewish American creators, right? Mm. So his, name, his real name is Jakob Kurtzberg. Right. Stanley's real name is Stanley Lieber. And of course, there's a whole echelon of like Jewish American creators who helped build the modern day comics industry as we know it, because at the time, you know, comics were not respected as, it was really close to like pornography in some people's eyes, actually. And so, um, you know, people, you would not want to go to a dinner party and be like, hey, I draw the Hulk. And they're like, get out of here, you know? So, um, So it was a way for Jewish American folk to kind of like create a space for themselves, feed themselves, but also effectively, you know, tell particular types of stories, right? And that's kind of like how the, this duo started doing it and so it was like well what if this character what if, what if jack kirby was black kirby <laughs> you know what if he was this black character creator in another universe that was actually like using instead of using norse mythology was using like european west african mythology so the mighty thor could be it could be the mighty shango right because they're kind of like the same character right or or like major sankofa stands in from for Captain America because Captain America is Sankofa, right? Cause he's reached back to the past, you know, pulling it forward and that kind of thing. So it's like, those are some of the ideas that we started playing around with. And then making those other things, like for instance, the fact that the Black Panther character predates the Black Panther Party, calling itself that by like four months that's really interesting you know <laughs>
0: that is interesting yeah like
1: you know the retcon of like back to king being back being professor xavier and magneto being malcolm x pre mecca right that kind of stuff um is really really interesting so we actually started making those connections more explicit right and, it, and before you knew it we created like 120 pieces of work and we had a show called in search of the mother box connection which we actually kind of play around with what so so the mothership connection obviously is talking about Parliament and funkadelics mythos right Mm -hmm. but if you look at like the mother box the mother box was a living computer that was a a piece of technology that was owned by a new god like these characters that jack kirby created for dc called the new gods and so it was a living computer that connected them directly to the universe right so that's actually where the the title the mother box connection comes from but because it's kind of like Signifying on mothership connection.
0: So this is kind of fascinating because part of what you're doing is exploring a axis of oppression that exists across different folk. That's in, right. In the United States, and on the other hand, Stanley and Jack Kirby, as Jewish American creators, were also taking iconic, real life Black resistance figures such as Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. and symbolically illustrating them and transforming them into white <laughs> superheroes and villains. Right, right. right. Yeah, well, and, it's, it's a thing. and it's really contentious
1: too because I'm not, you know, I think that it's become part of the exploration. I, I don't know if that's necessarily was the original intent, but um, I think that it sounds really awesome. So that's the other thing too is that, huh. you know, so because it's it just something that kind of like started, but it, it kind of became generative. And then, of course, when they... Uh, huh. When they did, yeah, because I don't know if it was the initial thing. I think that it's just become part of what the mythology of the creation of the characters been. That's why I was like, it's kind of contentious, you know, which I kind of like, you know.
0: Oh, this is interesting. So in a way, this has been reread also back into those characters, and we're kind of unclear as to the authorial intent then. That's
1: right. That's right. Which huh, interesting. that's why I said it's kind of a retcon because it's like the retroactive continuity. Because what happens later on is that you know, I mean, when you first see Magneto, he's kind of like a he's a megalomaniac, you know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> he's just like you know crazy like mutant dude with powers and he's like take over the world you know he's very he's very one-dimensional but then once you get to like the late 70s into the early 80s they start to play off the fact that Magneo actually is jewish and he survived concentration camp and he actually you know is is responding to violence not only against him as being a mutant but also him being jewish you know what i'm saying so that's that's actually really interesting
0: Moving a little bit away from uh, Jack Kirby, I'm very curious to know a little bit about your own uh, original creations, such as the Blue Hand Mojo series. Mm. And the hard boiled, is it a Chicago detective? Yeah, yeah, yeah. he was Yeah,
1: it's like, funny because he's not necessarily a detective. It's like he he has the trappings of the what, what some people call the blues detective, right? Ah, blues detective. Okay, explain that to us. Well, the blues detective uh, is a trope that is a you know essentially like a black detective who's connected to the South in some way or has a connection to the Great Migration in some way, which is you know impossible not to, I guess. But they basically work in a in an urban space, you know? So there's other people like, you know, like um, Walter Mosley's character, Easy Rollins, or there's uh, Coffin Ed and um, Gravedigger Jones from like Chester Himes' novels, right? So you have these characters that actually are black policemen or black detectives who are working in those spaces. I want to say the first novel that was of that kind was The Conjure Man Dies, which is by Rudolph Fisher, I think, is the name of the, the gentleman that wrote that. The Conjure Man Dies is like the first like black detective story, kinda, you know? Because of that, I actually have a, have a chapter in my story that's called The Conjure Man Lies. <laughs> the main character in my story is a character called Robert, uh, excuse me, called Frank Half-Dead Johnson. And so he's the fictitious cousin of the blues man, Robert Johnson,
0: right? Nice.
1: So instead of him going to the crossroads to get virtuosity and, mu- and musicianship, you know, he, his family, unfortunately, is the victim of um, a really, really violent racial act against his family, and they're killed, you know, and he escapes. And so what he does, knowing that his cousin, who's a little bit older, went down to crossroads and became, supposedly became this musician, he goes and he wants to become a conjurer, He wants to get power, like magical power, to actually like, have the power to exact revenge against his enemies, right? So once he does, he 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 reaches into the noir, which is like this space where all black creativity comes from. It's also like a living creature, like a living woman, you know, that he kind of like it's a almost like a representation of a this open space. And so he gets the power, he actually exacts his revenge and he's like immediately almost immediately regrets it. <laughs> and so he Figures out a way to win half of his soul back from the devil, right? And the devil actually really respects that quite a bit. And he's like, Hey, you're more crafty than any of my demons, you know, you should work for me. So, in order to truly get out of his contract, he has to work for the devil for like a couple hundred years, you know, uh, collecting souls for him and also, you know, just uh, doing some of his dirty work. And so, um The devil, knowing that he's at rapture, is going to be thrown into the pits of hell forever, if you read the book of Revelations, right? Um, He's composing a blues song for the end of the world, and it's called the Lowdown Devil Blues. And so what's happening is like each soul has a different resonance, and so certain souls resonate sonically in a particular way, and so he's collecting... The souls to actually compose this um, this blues song for the end of the world. This part of the story. In the meantime, uh, Frank is trying to keep as many people from going to hell as possible, trying to stay at one step ahead of uh, Scratch, which is what we call the devil in the uh, in the story. But then again, you know, is he really the devil, right? That's the other question. It's like. He's probably Eshu or like you know, Papa Legba or someone like that. That's probably who he is, actually. But uh, that kind of stuff you probably find out later, because um, the first part of the story I want to have happen in the 30s, and then I want to track because he's so long lived, he can actually live into like a science fiction space too, right? Yes. So that's actually something that I want to do with later stories is actually have him track his his life into the future,
0: you know. Is he tracking souls by using music i'm i'm just completely reminded here of the sun Ra quote where sun Ra says my measurement of race is a rate of vibration oh that's interesting
1: yeah um, he has this, uh these smoke these um cigarettes i think it's called smokestack actually and it has a lightning bolt on it so it's actually like referencing the howling wolf song you know and um they're like magical cigarettes. And so he uses them to do scrying and divining and you know, to cast spells and stuff. So a lot of times, you know, if he's looking for someone, he'll just put do a couple puffs on the cigarette and the smoke will find people.
0: Incredible. All right. <laughs> so I know for the past couple of months now, um, I believe pretty much for a year now, you've been working on Octavia Butler's Kindred. Yes, we did and it. transforming that into a graphic novel. Yes. Um, This is a very challenging novel, and having had the chance to teach this for a class, um, the impact upon people who first encounter it and read it is uh, palpable. It's uh, a novel that brings the sort of horrors and violence of slavery to a very personal, uh, contained narrative and uses time travel to do so. Um, What has it been like illustrating Octavia Butler's Kindred? You know, it is...
1: It is as soul wrenching as you think. It's exciting, but it is a very heavy book, and um, even the breakdowns of like, say, some of the racialized violence and insinuated like psychological violence is heavy. I mean, it's like I had to take some breaks between like drawing stuff. Like the first whipping scene, actually, that happens, uh, it was it was actually very um, disturbing. Yeah, and it was really crazy, though, is I have to actually render it, like, so that was just a sketch. So I actually have to go back and actually show the viscera and the blood and the pain, you know? So yeah, that that kind of, um, you know, it's very difficult to draw that kind of, like, violence that isn't cartoony. You know what I'm saying? Because I am drawing cartoons, but it's a very realistic, you know, story as far as, like, just the types of violence that, have, that happened both spiritually and physically to people who are in Chattanooga in America. So it's like, yeah, it's hard <laughs> with everything else on. It's very daunting because it's like you know, it's intense you know, on like a lot of different levels. So. <laughs> so
0: yeah, for sure. Not to focus on this exclusively, but you were mentioning the whipping scene and the challenge of illustrating that. Mm-hmm. When encountering these kinds of scenes, how are you encountering it as an artist in terms of choosing how to depict that violence? Are you depicting that violence word for word as the kind of scene develops on the page? Or are you trying to find a particular moment of that scene of violence and choosing that moment to draw?
1: I am choosing moments. I think we are choosing moments. Um, this, a lot of the text is on those spaces are pretty, because she's such a, she was such a great writer as far as like describing action. Mm. Very terse and powerful, succinct words, and um, that's been very helpful. So we uh, tend to do like different cut, didn't, different scene cuts and stuff, and you know, trying to show the pain and the uh, anguish, not by directly showing it. Because some of that is directly shown, but some of it is actually using onomatopoeia and like hand gestures and other types of very uh, essentially using some of the language of film, you know, to show uh, emotion. You know, mm. so so I would say like. The text itself is actually a little bit more descriptive and then you can play around with images a lot more as far as what you're showing.
0: John, it's been an absolute pleasure here having you on the Afrofuturism podcast. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, yeah, thank
1: you. I really appreciate it.